It's the Bible Rundown with Rob Lindley and David Cottle. We're here today. It is a great day. We're in the middle of Job. Elihu, the fourth friend, the young one, the youngster, the little guy, has a word to speak to Job. We wrestled with it yesterday. Is he good? Is he bad? Where is he? I think we're wrestling with that still, but... Uh, I'm I'm more inclined as we read further that he is really just saying what the other three friends have said, even though he's against the other three friends earlier in the verses. David, tell us what we can learn from chapter 34 and 35. What should we glean if we're reading the scriptures today? How should we read this to be able to say, the Lord spoke to me through the reading of Elihu. So I'm going to focus on 34. Uh, he, he leads into what I want to focus on with verses 14 and 15, speaking of, if God should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. Mm. So God is at the center of Elihu's understanding of the universe and everything that happens in life, right? Right, And then he uses the next verses to focus on God's judgment. And as I was reading through it, I see four specific marks of God's judgment. In verse 19, when he talks about he doesn't show partiality and he doesn't regard the rich more than the poor, uh, I think this shows us that God has no favorites. Mm. The second one, verse 20, in a moment they die. At midnight the people are shaken and pass away and the mighty are taken away by no human hand. There's no uncertainty with what happens to us, right? It's appointed for man to die once and then face God's judgment. None of us escape that reality no matter how powerful we are, rich we are, right? Mm -hmm. We all return to the grave. And then verses 21 through 25, I think when he's talking about this is that there's no ignorance on God's part. He saw every single moment of how we live our lives, Rob, and so he judges, judges impartially based upon the wholeness of our life, mm. right? It's not like he skips over some sins. He holds everyone against us. And then the last one is there's no secrecy with God's judgment. I think you see that in verses 26 through 28, right? Um, he strikes them for their wickedness in a place for all to see. Revelation shows us that the public display of God's judgment and justice will be very clear to the living and the dead, right? None of us will have anything hidden. Every wrong will be made right, and that will be done in a very public, if you want to call it a heavenly court setting. So I think Eliehu can, like we said, he, he gives us truth. Right. But here's the question. What are you going to do with that? If you know that God is not impartial, or if you know he's impartial, he doesn't have favorites, if you know... There's no uncertainty. If you know there's no ignorance on his part, that he knows everything you've done with your life. And ultimately, you know you're going to be publicly judged in his heavenly court and held accountable for what you did. Then it goes back to what we started. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom yeah. and turn away from evil. So I think to 
to preach, if you want to call it hellfire and brimstone, right? It's not to create a, a fear that is unresolved. It's to create a fear that we know who is the judge and we meet him on his terms. And his terms are not burdensome. It's the gospel, right? Yeah. That despite all these things and his ability to want to carry out his justice the way he deserves to, he offers you free and unconditional grace. And yet many around us reject it every single day. So I would say that when we when we read this text and we hear these things, these truths about how God operates, <clears throat> we are reminded that we can speak truths about who God is. Um, we can tell people, look, your sin is a result of your judgment and you're being judged by God and you're going to hell. But in the reality of, it, of the, the message of the gospel isn't the central focus of our teaching and preaching and also of our conversations with non-believers and even believers. If that's not the central focus of what we're doing, we can say all these true and right things and yet still be off. And, uh, you know, so, you know, a conversation that would look like this would be, you talk to uh, someone who's really in intense suffering and you say, well, because of your wickedness and your, and your sin, you are destined to hell. And then not tell them about the grace of God in Christ Jesus and how he came to save them from their sin and, and give them the hope of eternal life. So I, I do think that uh, Elihu here gives us, he, he gives us a lot of truth here in this in in 34 what about 35 what do you see here as Elihu answers his own questions mm -hmm. <laughs> you know I think it's one of those things he asks these rhetorical questions right um but the answers in and of themselves kind of leave you, leave you wanting. And for somebody that claimed to have all the wisdom, I think that was in, in yes, yesterday's or is it in today's, um, where he basically says like, <laughs> he has words of wisdom and then uh, that he's, he's the perfect one with knowledge. It's interesting that like his questions to Job again are not things that Job hasn't already heard and so the wisdom the question I have for Elihu is where's the application of the wisdom you know the the it goes back to what you said I think when when we look at Elihu's response and answering these friends and then answering to Job there's nothing new under the sun and he accuses the others of having like empty talk when they open his mouth but He's, he's not driving Job towards a hope. I think that's the big issue. Yeah. So. Well, wrestling with Elihu, let's move on to Acts chapter 15, where we get some more coherent speech. Uh, this is the story of God through the New Testament, <clears throat> the story of the church, the story of the Holy Spirit's work in the life of people. And you get to the Jerusalem Council. 
um, again, we had this earlier about uh, in the days of Cornelius with some of uh, some of the brothers being stirred up by <clears throat> by the the circumcision party. We get this again. Um, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And they're teaching this. Um, so Paul and Barnabas are going to make sure that they know that this teaching is false. What do you see here? Well, you also, and I'm glad you brought up Cornelius, because who's the other person that defends what the work of Paul and Barnabas to the Gentiles is doing? Peter. Peter, right? And Peter stands up and, like you said, is showing that the Holy Spirit doesn't make any distinction. So what he's, he describes it as a yoke, right? Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? You know, And so it's interesting. We talked about uh, chapter 13 and chapter 14 were about the founding of the churches in Galatia which is the letter to the Galatian churches is Galatians. And this is what Paul's big focus is upon, right? The so-called circumcision party. People that are adding to the gospel right. a requirement that is really a burden and not something that is of the spirit. Yeah. And so they do tell them that they should do a few things, uh, abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. Um, and the reason why is the Old Testament has been has been written in every read in every every Sabbath in the synagogues in every city. So, well, interesting. It, it is, and I think that this is where people can get confused wait weren't they just saying they don't need to keep a portion of the mosaic law so now why are they saying they need to do these things and inferring in it that it's because of the mosaic law being read that they need to keep them the the issue at hand is in response to the gospel which has freed you to do what to live a righteous and holy right. life how do you now live well you no longer need the act of of circumcision, right? Right. You no longer need certain things that God had declared as a sign of covenant when you are now in what? The new covenant in Christ. Right. But that doesn't negate the call to holiness, which is what the majority of the Mosaic Law was pointing us to, right? Right. Being set apart from the world around us. So the That's question good. for us is, what are you not separate from? Yeah, and and I like I like what you said. The gospel drives us to be free to separate ourselves from the world, and I think there's a unity issue here as well between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians being able to worship together in love. And uh, mm -hmm. there's there's unity in laying down your rights for your brother. And speaking of laying down their rights for their brother, John, who had deserted them back in the day now wants to go with them again and their sharp disagreement leads Barnabas and Paul two superpowers to go opposite directions what, what do we take from this I don't have a dog in the fight right but I've always wondered why Luke 
left out the details of what the sharp disagreement was. I mean, come on, Luke. You can record the pretty much the whole dialogue of what they talk about at the Jerusalem Council, but you can't tell us what Paul and Barnabas were arguing over John Mark. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think the frustration for me is, they Rob, they just showed how to resolve a disagreement using the word of God to right. to bring unity. And so how can they not overcome like this interpersonal conflict that they've got over one individual? But here's the thing. God uses major it. on the majors, minor on the minors, right? And God uses it anyway. He does. And I think the encouragement for us is there's going to be these kind of sharp disagreements in the church. Right. They're the sharp disagreements that are gospel issues, we have to seek unity. But sharp disagreements that are interpersonal in nature, sometimes it's best, in the words of Elsa, to just let it go, right? But sometimes letting it go, it might mean for a season severing the relationship. But what happens? Later on, Paul calls for who? John Mark. John Mark, and he becomes the writer of the gospel in the New Testament. So That's a big deal. So there will be times, I think, probably more so for us in leadership roles where we butt heads with people in the church and and just like Paul and Barnabas were, were leaders, right? Yeah. They, they choose to separate. Um, those things are going to happen. Can we do it with grace? But do we also do it with grace on the flip side? understanding that the Lord could restore the relationship and are we willing to receive it yeah. back. And if you're hard-hearted towards a person and refusing to ever be reconciled, that's a dangerous place to be. And clearly Paul wasn't in that position. No. It's a good word, Bible rundown. We'll see you tomorrow.